0: Ephesians chapter 4 verses uh, 26 and 27 is our text today. How many of you were here last week or maybe the couple, last couple of weeks? Good, good. Oh, that's, thank you, but I didn't need that. That's all right. <laughs> um, we have started a discussion about the new man. Uh, that's the, terms that, the term that Paul puts towards the converted person, the believer, the person who's come by faith in Christ alone, this new man who is in the process of being conformed in the image of Jesus. If you wanna break this letter down, this whole six chapters into kinda two halves, you have one half that is talking about our new identity, it is the good news story. It's the gospel that God finds sinners and saves sinners. It is his work, his work alone. And something happens when God saves people. The, this, the way the scriptures describes it is that, that we are made brand new. Minds have been renewed. The old is gone. He talks about the put off and put on part of it. That, that is the, the outcome of the, the good news. The second half, which we're just beginning together, is, is how Paul wants us to understand what this new life looks like now. If we're new and the old is dead, if our minds have been renewed, now what? It's kind of the conclusion of this. Uh, this section is the details, in my opinion. It is the specifics. It's also a lesson, in, again, of our numbness, I think, to our culture, and um, that we just kind of live with. Also a numbness to a former life we used to live before Christ got a hold of us, the ways of the culture, the ways of our language, the ways of our behavior, that we just kind of drag along with us in in life. And so Paul confronts these things. I I told you last week that the most frequent transgressions of God's people tend to be the most accepted sins of our culture. So if you just wanna look and see what this church would struggle with, what Paul the apostle would go after, just look at the culture. And see what's normal out there. And more than likely, you'll see a little bit of that, you know, behavior making its way into the church. There is a way about us, uh, if we're honest, I think, that tends to be more like our world than we want it to be. And way more like our world than like our Savior is. And if we're understanding that we've been made new and that God wants to form us into the image of Jesus, then there's some detail work to be done, right? Agreed? There's some work on some of this precision stuff. And The proof, in my opinion, is the list of acceptable sins. And I use that term loosely. That's not a theological term. It's not Paul's term. It's my term. Because you look at the list that we get in these four chapters and you go, what's the big deal? I mean, this is the kind of stuff you teach in the, in the Ignite classroom. Fifth and sixth graders get this stuff. Elementary school kids get this kind of stuff. What's the big deal about this list of sins? This is because it's the kind of the normal sins. These sins are all too present and familiar to the church. But the, possible, the Apostle Paul in his declaration of the good news, the gospel, is that the gospel does some explosive work in our life. It does way more than just make us saved and make us feel better. The gospel, the good news, actually makes us live and makes us behave better. That's what the gospel does. It's the total man, not just a converted relationship with God, but a changed relationship towards other people. And that's what we're learning here together. Now, I'm going to have to emphasize something just so you're clear about this. Our behavior is not linked to our salvation. The key in understanding the first three chapters and that it is good news is that God is the saver of sinners. Sinners don't cooperate with God to save themselves, right? God interrupts. It's a hostile takeover of the heart for God for us when he comes after us because the scriptures say that we're hostile. We're at at war, we're at enmity with God unless the actor moves on the sinner. And God is the owner of salvation, it is his his work, and so the good news is the story that he saves sinners completely and totally. The good news is that we are fully accepted, perfectly and completely, already in Jesus by faith. There's no work left to be done. It is already completed, already dressed in the righteous robes of Christ, we're as holy as we'll ever be, more love than you could possibly fathom. That is the gospel of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Finished work. You're a new creature, all done, okay? That's why it's so powerful for us but it seems at least reasonable, if not normal, that that kind of amazing love, God to sinner, that so transform us completely that we're holy in his presence, it seems reasonable to assume that it would also create a brand new affection in the sinner, right? In the converted person, in the person who embraces Christ, something would happen to our affections. Wouldn't you agree with that? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever received or experienced a ridiculous gift, like you have to you have to go beyond gift, go to ridiculous when you receive such a gift that your brain doesn 't know how to process it, maybe maybe that was something tangible to you, like somebody just was absurd in their giving, um, may, maybe it was something like a service, like somebody just really went out of their way to care for you and they didn 't have to there was no obligation maybe it was some some version of forgiveness that You couldn't get your mind around because in your own assessment of your heart, you would struggle to forgive you. I have been married 34 years this last June. In 34 years, I've had umpteen million times to screw it up. Do you understand? And what's amazing about that is my wife, Sue, just keeps forgiving me. And every time she does, every time there's a blunder, she forgives me, something happens to my affections. I, I, I wanna be around her more. I, I want to serve her more. I want to do stuff for her more. And, and there's a part of me, I, I, I'm not foolish enough to think that I won't struggle again, but there's a part of me that says, I don't ever want to mess up ever again, right? Isn't that kind of the normal process when you've been relieved from something like that? Forgiveness creates a whole new affection, and that's Paul's point of the gospel. This, this gap between chapter three and chapter four is filled in with the response to the overwhelming gift of God's forgiveness. God's people, we have a new heart when you and I actually stop to consider what Christ has done, it affects us. When Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore walk in a manner worthy of your calling. When he says in chapter 4, verse 17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. When he says in chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators therefore of God. All those things aren't, they don't look like burdened commands. They don't look like do this and you'll be loved. They're the obvious conclusion to people who have been changed and been given such a great gift. We go, of course I would. This, this doesn't sell to us like we're some kind of stuck in a difficult grind at a have to command. Like, I, I don't really want to be imitators of God. I, I really don't want to have my life match my words. This sounds like a lot of weight to me. That's not how you read this. Paul's instructions to the church is an I want to instruction. God has made me new. I want to. That's why it's almost a, an obvious conclusion for Paul to write these things. And these things that Paul brings up here, which seem to be honest, very primary. You can look at the list and you you would say, I don't want that in my life. I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to steal. I don't want to have a corrupt mouth. Nobody sits there and says, that's my freedom. I should have it. We look at those lists, those things that are so common, and we hate those things because we've got a new heart. We want to be like Christ. There's a new affection So Paul simply says to us, the actions of a dead man were those actions, but now that you've been changed, we reject those actions, right? And we replace those actions with godly behavior because of this new affection. Last week we talked about lying, as practical as that is. Today we get to talk about anger. So what I want to do is read the passage and then just ask us some questions and hopefully the questions will lead us to some conclusions, God's conclusions on the issue of anger. We're going to back up to verse 24 and read to verse 27. Paul talking about this new life we have, he says, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give uh, and give no opportunity to the devil pray with me would you please God we need your help today to hear this in our souls we need your help today to limit how we hear this this sermon is not for somebody else it's for us in a, in a culture losing its mind in anger in, in a way in a place where everyone justifies why they're angry I pray your Holy Spirit would sift us and search us God guard my lips speak to your people I pray Lord let us put on the life of Christ with joy We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me start with a disclaimer. There is absolutely no way we can unpack the subject of anger in one week, and I'm not gonna try, but we're gonna try to make a dent, all right? And like I said, we're gonna ask some questions, and hopefully the questions are kind of the the tutor that leads us to some conclusions about what God thinks uh, about anger. It's also gonna be practical. I I just don't wanna have these conversations about something so obvious and not leave here with homework. Because I think if we just say, hey, yeah, let everybody just... Be cool, don't be angry. I think we need more help than that. So we're going to try to get practical. Let me start with this question. Are we angry? <laughs> what do you think? You Need some illustrations? No. Look in the mirror. Husbands and wives are angry at each other. Just come to counseling, you'll see it. Kids are angry at their Parents. We're angry at our leaders. We're angry about our culture. We're angry about what people say. We're angry about what they don't say. We're angry that some people aren't angry. We're angry at people who get angry. And don't get me started on politics because then we lose our minds. We're angry at the church. They don't do enough. They do too much. We're angry at others. We're angry at ourselves. We're just an angry people. And it seems like the the ground that we are growing in is almost as bad as I've ever seen it in my lifetime. It's it's nonstop. So are we angry, church? Because if we don't start here with an honest answer, then you might as well just wrap it up and go out. Because this is what the Holy Spirit has to say to the church. After we've received the good news of our salvation, this new man needs to wrestle with the old man. And the old man, this rattling dead flesh, still gets angry. So, are we angry? Yes. And just so that everyone can make it to this party, let's not just isolate this discussion to a type of angry. Let's include everybody into this wonderful, terrible narrative. All right? I have confessed to you many times before that I if I am in the flesh, if I don't live by the spirit, that one of the things I'll struggle with is anger. And I might have said it so many times that I've car- created kind of a character of myself. Like you think, well, he's just, stay away from that guy. Um, now, I, I wanna try to defend me a little bit. Um, my problem is I'm intense about everything. I'm more intense about everything than most people are about anything. And that, that has caused me a lot of harm in my life. But at 57, here's what I'm here to tell you, God has done work in my life. I'm not what I was. If I introduce you to all my friends in my 20s and 30s, they would say, he's not even alive anymore, that guy is gone. That doesn't mean I still don't have times where it boils in me, it does. But I'm not what I was. I'm very encouraged by seeing the change that God has done in my life. Nevertheless, there it sits. It still sits there if I'm not careful. If I stop to contemplate, which we all do and we all should, on my regret list, our faces and times where I went too far. And you know what it's like when you get angry, right? You can't get it back. You can't get back what you do or how you look or what you say or what you meant. Nobody cares. At that point, cow's out of the barn. You can't get it back. So let let me just make sure that we all understand anger. Maybe some of you this morning can identify with my intensity and go, "Ah." Yeah, you and me, brother. I've had people come to me and go, hey, try to bump fist about my anger. I'd rather not celebrate that, <laughs> by the way. But you might share this intensity. Let's just call this person the obviously angry guy. He can be spotted pretty easily because he's typically red in face. There's veins typically pulging out of his face somewhere. And when he's in conversations with people, he's leaning in, not leaning away. Those those are the easy ones to dislike and easy ones to to spot, but there's other types of angry people. There's another kind that, that is not so easy to spot. Let's call him the silent killer because he's just smoldering under the surface and he breaks out in rashes and hives because he's so intent on keeping it in control. He internalizes. And by the way, this is not any more righteous than the obviously angry person. It's just a different way to be angry. There is also this passive-aggressive, too-insecure-to-be-honest angry person. Um, This person is equally just as angry and unrighteous. He's just more concerned with being liked, and we've met people like that, don't we? There's also the justified angry person. This person knows he's angry, and he knows why, and he knows how to fix it. It's your fault. (laughs) If you just stop this or start that, do a list of things, I won't be angry. My anger is not my issue. My anger is you, right? Every guy in here is going... That's me. It's kind of, kind of the way we deal with it. So at least we have to admit before we start that this is uh, an issue for all. that We're not immune to it. It's a war that we all fight from time to time. So, so let me ask you this question. What, what causes it? What causes this sinful anger that Paul says that we shouldn't walk in anymore? Let, let me give you two things. I'm certain there's someone who could unpack even more, but I think these are big enough buckets to contain everything. Let's just say pride and let's say false gods. And if, if you wanted to trace your anger to something, it, it's typically you or something higher than God. You are false gods. Let's talk about pride for a second, which is the cause of a lot of our anger. In fact, it's the quickest way to assess uh, if your anger is wrong, just trace it. Trace your anger, does it go back to you? Gotcha. Does it go back to you being insulted or disrespected? Does it go back to your ideas getting blown off or you being left out or marginalized? Well, you got it then, you've got this, this pride. And pride is a sneaky thing, isn't it? It desperately wants to be overvalued by all the wrong people. That's what pride does. And pride is what drives our anger when being loved and treasured by God isn't enough. The holy God of creation said, I love you. I love you as much as an infinite God could possibly love you, and I've made you my treasure. You're my people, my chosen people, and you'll be with me forever. And we're worried about something or someone else and how they feel about me. And more anger comes up. So that's what happens when we care more about being treasured from someone else other than God. False gods can kick up our anger as well. Now, I know no no one, at least that I know, keeps a list of these false gods, but there's a subconscious list that we deal with. And on that list that we just live with and we manage our life with are things that we would say give us joy or give us worth or give us satisfaction. It could be your job, or your identity, your talent, whatever. Let's just give this this group a name. Let's call it our babies. <laughs> Whatever it is that makes you who you are and gives you a sense of peace, nothing stimulates anger like having someone disrespect our babies. Tim Keller once said that false gods never fail to fail. Can I add to that? False gods never fail to make us angry either. Because <laughs> somebody, somebody will, will touch them. Somebody will... Call them out, disrespect them, blow them off. False gods always make us angry too. All right, before we go on, there's something that needs to be observed here. Verse 26 says something a little bit unique here. Do you see it? Where he says, be angry and do not sin. I thought about doing a survey, but I don't, I don't have the time. Of that sentence, what did you hear? Some people go, be angry. That's what I heard. Be angry. Be um, angry. Then we have another chat involved with that one. So he says, be angry and do not sin. So the question should come up, is is anger always wrong? Isn't there something like righteous anger? Isn't that sort of what he's implying here in verse 26, some sense of righteous indignation? We need to talk about that for a second. Before I do, let me qualify something about verse 26. This passage is not the proof text for righteous indignation. If you wanted to go prove that God wants you to be righteously angry about something, this is not the place I would go. Now, this is an example or, or an assumption that Paul makes about righteous indignation, but it is not the proof text. To be clear, the primary purpose of verse 26 is do not sin, not be angry. All right? So if you heard that and go, great, honey, I told you I could be angry, you're, you're wrong. Because Paul's intent in this passage is to shut down anger not fan anger. So the NIV, I think, does a better job of making Paul's point where it says, in your anger, do not sin. There's an assumption about anger, and here's the assumption. Paul isn't commanding it here. He's just stating that if we're gonna be imitators, truly imitators of God that he says in chapter five, then there are some things that church is gonna get angry about. Assume it. You, it's just gonna happen. And let me just describe it so we know exactly what type of anger God has. Again, this is not exhaustive, but it'll help us understand when it's right. A righteous anger is an anger over injustice, killing of innocence. A righteous anger is is over hatred and abuse and racism. A righteous anger is is anything that abuses human rights and human dignity. A righteous anger is whenever there's a violation of God's character. Whenever anything blocks faith should make us angry. Let me give you an example. This is the life of Christ. Um, Early on in his ministry, he had entered a synagogue and he was about healing people, blessing people. And the religious opposition could care less about people. That made Jesus angry. Here's the story, Mark three. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do, do harm, to save or to kill? Jesus knew what was on their hearts. The question was a setup. It was, it was a setup because he knew they were not four people And what did they do? They remained silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You could care less about the human condition. You could care less about suffering or hurting. You want jot and tittle laws, but you could care less about others. And Jesus got angry. One writer describing Christ's response to things like this said it pretty well. He said, remarkably, Jesus never gets angry when people hurt him which is the number one way we get angry. The very point where he might blow where we might blow our stacks. It's not where he gets angry. On another occasion when the Pharisees call him demon possessed he responds matter-of-factly because he holds on to his time and schedule so lightly he doesn't get irritated by being interrupted because he owns so little he has so little fuel for fire. Yet he gets upset with injustice and hypocrisy in others. When compassion is blocked, his anger is centered on others' welfare. He also gets upset with anything that inhibits faith. The disciples block the faith of the little children. The money changers block the faith of the non-Jews. Jesus gets angry at anything that prevents love to people or dependence on God. There's a place for righteous anger. It's the heart of God. Psalm 711 Maybe you're not aware of this, but it says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Anger every day. Does that sound absurd to you? Like why would God be angry every day? I will tell you it's pretty simple. Because he is angered by everything that goes against what he loves. And how how great of a description of our world is that. Everything is against what he loves. Of course his anger, his righteous anger is gonna be lit up every day. According to Paul, we're to be imitators of God and it's pretty simple, the conclusion of what that means. We are to hate what he hates. We're gonna be imitators of God. We're to love what he loves and what makes him angry should make us angry. Would you agree, church? That is what it means to follow and that is what it looks like to be righteously angry, Okay. So that's a side note, probably another sermon for another time, but let's get into this discussion about uh, don't sin with our anger that is Paul's point in this passage. Let me ask you another question. Is it that big of a deal? Really? Isn't it the language of how we operate? Isn't that the way of business and the way of culture? How you manage schools, isn't that how you manage life tensions in the neighborhood? Don't we just isn't anger a tool? What's the big deal? It's normal, everybody does it, and as long as I don't hurt anybody, right? Isn't that the law? I can lose my mind. I can stand on a corner, and I can scream at you as long as I don't touch you. Isn't that okay? Well, let me describe to you why it's a big deal. Here's answer number one. Because anger is not like Jesus. James 1.20, for the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is best depicted in the life of Christ. You cannot be like Jesus with that kind of anger. You and I, according to the scriptures, are predestined to be conformed in the image of who? It's easy. Remember I told you, if in doubt, answer Jesus. Jesus is where he's taken us, okay? Jesus didn't stand on corners and spit nails for the wrong things. The image of Jesus, the predominant image of Jesus, as much as we like to call up the turning over the money changer tables in the temple, as much as that's our proof text for everything, the predominant image of Christ is love and compassion, is it not? Wasn't he overwhelmingly known as someone who loved? Isn't that what John 3 tells you? For God so loved the world. He didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world. God sent love into the world. His name was Jesus. The image of Christ is love and compassion. Sinful anger is self-focused, not others-focused. Let me give you another reason why it's a problem. Because sinful anger is the emotion of fools. Ecclesiastes 7.9. Not, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. There's another word we like to use for the condition of foolishness. It's called blindness. Like when you're communicating truth to somebody and the blinders are up so much they can't see the obvious we call them a flu fool. We might call them blind. You can't see it. You can't spot it. But everybody knows what it's like when you're dealing with someone who's a fool. Only fools don't know. They're foolish. I have been in several counseling sessions in my life for others. Um, and this story might prove to you why you never want to come to me for counseling. Um, many years ago, I was a student pastor here and, uh, On occasion, there'd be some tension in a home, some high school kid, you know, classic acting like a punk to the mom and dad. And I got a call from a mom, and she was upset, and she wanted a counseling thing, so we got our biblical counselor in there, and they invited me in there because I'm the student pastor, and so this is the story. Biblical counselor behind the desk, me in a chair, mom and dad in two chairs, and son in the center of the room. And we get there and mom unloads on Junior, just unloads on him, I mean she doesn't, there's not much she likes about him to be honest with you. And she's cruel and she's harsh and she's like got this memorized monologue and she's just blowing him up, right? And in the midst of this conversation she looks at her husband and he's blowing him up too and the whole thing is all messy. And, and it, it took like five minutes and I go, I know what the problem is. I stopped the conversation I said, I know what it is. And she said, what? I said, it's you. Hence why you don't want to come to me for counseling. I said, you're mean and you're cruel and you don't listen and you demean your husband and you diminish his authority. And she goes, that's not true. She starts yelling at me and she looks at him. It's not true, is it? And he looks at me and he goes. And I never saw them again. Sinful anger is the emotion of a blind person, of a fool. Can't see it. Let me give you another reason, because anger is a gas to a fire. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Let me ask you a question. How many times in your life did your anger actually make a situation better? Answer me. Never. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it better. The wisest man who ever lived said, listen, all it does is stir up problems and strife. That's what your kind of sinful anger does. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't make you feel better. I'm saying, did it make it better? And no is the answer. And if I gave you enough time right now, my assumption is if it happens to you like it happens to me, faces pop up in your face, in your memory. And you see the people you're angry at and you know, you know you created strife. You've made nothing better. Wisdom, wisdom. Anger doesn't even work. Let me give you another reason. Anger is the reaction of the selfish. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? What is it? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. There's a problem in us. It's called selfishness. What causes the problems? because I'm stuck on me. That's what causes the problems. Now, let me, let me just talk about the bullseye for a second. nine 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 percent of the time, our anger is centered on this one issue, selfishness. Remember a couple weeks ago, I used the illustration of the dead rattlesnake. How many of you remember that? Okay, handful of you do. Well, this was many years ago. I killed a rattlesnake, cut its head off, and I crushed its head actually, and the tail, like minutes, like minutes, half an hour later, we're still rattling. <clears throat> and I use that as a picture of what it's like for the old man in us, this man that Christ put to death when it starts making noise in different ways, sinful ways, like anger. How anger is the rattle of the dead man. It, it just does that. Well, let me just tell you this. The loudest rattle in a believer's life, the old flesh rattle, is selfishness. And if you want the quickest math almost every sin, here it is, selfishness. I do what I want, when I want, how I want, why I want, because I'm the center of the universe, hence the explanation for sin. It is always self. Why is anger a problem? Let me give you a last one. Because anger is the greenhouse for other sin. It's interesting in verse 27 where he says, Paul says, and give no opportunity to the devil. The word opportunity in the Greek is used to refer to a territory or a land or a particular defined place. That's why I just kind of pictured in my mind, well, a place like a greenhouse, a fertile place where other sins can germinate and grow. That's, that's what he has in mind. Don't give a fertile place for sin to grow up, and anger does that. In anger, if we don't deal with our angerness, what grows out of it is bitterness, hatred, violence, and more selfishness. The NIV uses the phrase, um, don't give the devil a foothold. One old seminary professor described it like this. He says, have you ever seen a mountain climber scale a mountain? He doesn't need a four-lane highway to get there. If you watch the climber, you can see that he uses such a small little foothold, inch by inch, and he gains victory over the mountain." In your life, Satan doesn't need a huge opening. And you are not safe if there's the slightest foothold. And hence, hence Paul says, don't give a place for anger because sin grows in anger. Don't give even the slightest bit of territory for it. So, I promised you homework. And if you're like me, it's gonna be helpful. Uh, This is how I think, if we include some of these things in our life, we can get a little bit better in our anger, and if you look at our culture and it's losing its mind, I don't think anybody really, I haven't looked at anybody and said, that person knows what it's like to manage the chaos. It seems like we lose our mind in all of it. So let me give you a couple of tips, a couple of wisdom tips in managing anger. Let me suggest to you that you exercise your ears more than your mouth. James 1, 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Most angry people that I know come to quick conclusions. I don't need to hear you, I already know. I don't need to listen, I've concluded. It happens fast. It doesn't mean that we're right, it just means that we've quit listening. And many times we're angry about stuff we know nothing about because we didn't even care to finish the conversation, we haven't listened. So how about use your ears? Let me give you another thing. And it connects to this first one. Be small. Be humble. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. I don't want to make you feel too bad, but have you ever felt the disgrace of anger? I promise you this is exactly what anger feels like the morning after. It always does. It never goes away. I don't know a single person who in his sinful anger ever wakes up and goes, man, that was such a great night. That's exactly how it should have gone down. Just disgrace, just shame, loss of self-control, distant relationships, everything you didn't want to have happen happened. You're more arrogant, you get farther away, you can't leave, nobody cares. I mean, it ruins everything. the disgrace of anger. Remember Paul's argument in this gospel response is wonderful good news is that we're putting on a brand new image, right? Isn't that the term? Let me remind you of his instructions to the church in Philippi where he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He, what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. Be small. If you were to go to a counseling session, I'm making some assumptions here because I'm not, like I said, a professional counselor, but my assumption is you went in with a anger issue and you were just angry. My assumption somewhere early on in the context of that conversation, someone would ask you, why, what are you angry about? Am I right, Kathy, is that a question that would come up? Yeah, people who counsel would ask you, why are you angry? And you would probably answer, well, this person did this to me. This person marginalizes me. This, this person offended me. And you would talk about that offense. To me, that's called the evaluation of the anger. And that's necessary. But I want you to go deeper. If you really want to try to deal with your anger, there's something else that would be better to do. Don't just evaluate your anger. Interrogate it. Because there's a big difference between concluding that I'm angry because of X, Y, and Z versus knowing why X, Y, and Z's disregard from you affected you to such a degree you would sinfully be angry, all right? In other words, there's a deeper reason for your anger, and it's never, it's never just the offense. It is that the person got close to your idol, and whether your idol was respect or, or authority or freedom or happiness, you can see students in this, right? You can see kids going, I need to be free, I'm 17 years old. Who are you to whatever? And anger comes out. Typically, you run into some idol. Right? In other words, this is something I need. I have to have this. Otherwise, I will not not be happy. Here's the encouragement. When it comes to your anger, dig it up. Don't cover it up. Don't just get to the place of saying, I know what made me angry. His name is Bob. Bob makes me angry. Any other questions? You gotta go deeper than that. You gotta go all the way to the source and the source is some other thing bigger than Jesus. And one last thing and it's the encouragement that Paul gives the church in verse 26. Do not, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's the last tip. Live by ASAP. In other words, some have read this passage to say, I can never go to sleep until i fixed all my problems with people. Well, you're never gonna go to sleep if that's the if that's the truth. I'm just suggesting that Paul's point is deal with it. Deal with it as soon as you can deal with it. If you can deal with it before you go to sleep, great. If you need to wake up the next morning and start working on it, work on it the next day. Just deal with it as soon as you can. Most of us, most of us are so reluctant for good confrontation. And that is not only like confrontation for others who might need that from us, but the self-confrontation where you deal with why you're angry, like, oh, I caught that idol. Yeah, I really needed to be respected, like really huge because I'm insecure in this area. You don't wanna deal with that, so you just don't deal with it and you just move on. Another day of work goes by and you come home and all that stuff, where does that go? You think it just dissipates? Do you think it just disappears? No, you create ruts in people's lives and specifically your own. And your children now get a distance, your wife gets a distance, or your husband gets a distance. Or your neighbors get a distance because the only way to, imagine, to manage things we won't deal with in a godly way is to compartmentalize and just to shut it down. Do you think it's going away? It just needs another place to fume up, right? It will come again. So, ASAP, life, right? Helpful, I hope. Practical. Guess what we get to talk about next week? Stealing. Woo-hoo. <laughs> All right. Let's let's pray and ask for God's help in our life. God we need to be like Christ not to be loved but to bear the image it is what will bring us joy every other version of life only brings more weight so God when it comes to this subject of anger it is so in us it is so in our culture it's such a normal language of our life God help us help us not sin help us to walk humbly just confessing we don't know everything about everything. And most of us, if not all of us, have no right whatsoever to be angry. Lord, let us walk like Christ, who cared and concerned himself for others. Let us not take an offense on ourselves. <clears throat> and let us be the image of Christ in this world, who is dying without the good news. I pray it in Christ's name, amen.